Thanks to Hello Monday from LinkedIn for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Hello Monday is a new podcast from LinkedIn's editorial team about how to get the most from your Monday and your career. Find Hello Monday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick. Joining me as always is Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Molly Fool. Everyone, hello. Hello. Yes, for everyone who complains that my voice is too high-pitched and chipper, this episode's <laughs> for you. And this week, we're going to learn about options for real estate investing with the help of Thomas Castelli, a tax strategist with the Real Estate CPA. All that and more on this week's episode of Molly Fool Answers. So, bro, what's up? Well, Allison, beside your voice, sit right back as I tell the tale of Jeanette Parker, a wildlife biologist in Florida who decided to feed a stray cat. Did you hear this story? What? This is not what we agreed upon. Yes, yeah, so I is heard this about really what yes, we agreed it is. On? You'll see. We'll get there. Anyways, I heard about her story recently on NPR in their Bill of the Month series, which is about healthcare costs with the help of Kaiser Health News. So Ms. Parker is driving along in the vicinity of the Everglades, sees, sees a stricken-looking cat, stops side of the road, pulls out some tuna, because of course she had some tuna. You gotta have tuna. You That's gotta right. have tuna. And the cat bit her. So, since that there had been some recent warnings in that area about cases and rabies, she figures she should get looked at, goes to the local health center, it's closed, goes to the emergency room at Mariner's Hospital, which is part of the Baptist Health South Florida network. She stays for two hours gets two shots, some antibiotics, doesn't even speak to a doctor, goes home, eventually gets the bill. Want to take a guess at how much this bill cost? Oh, it's going to be an insane amount of money, isn't it? It is. Do you want to guess? $20,000. dollars So her insurance covered most of it, but due to the deductible and the copay, she still had to pay $4,191. The majority of the cost came from the rabies immune globulin, which cost $46,422. Oh my gosh. So the NPR story quotes various resources as saying that the average cost for what she received is around $4,000. So it seems that Mariner's Hospital way overcharged her. And in fact, a month later, they dropped the price of that shot by 79%, mm. but too late for Ms. Parker and her insurance company. Why the drop? Well, they didn't. The, the hospital didn't explain it, but NPR pointed out that it was right before January, and this brings us to a very little noticed development that happened in the world of healthcare costs. So, as of January first of this year, hospitals are required to post their prices online in a big document called the Charge Master. No way! <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh, I want to Google our local Charge Master. The right Charge now. Master. All right, so. So this sounds like a big giant leap forward in price transparency, yes, right? Absolutely. Yes. Well, it's turning out to be maybe more of a baby step. And here's why. In the words of a Kaiser Health News article, quote, what is popping up on medical care center websites is a dog's breakfast of medical codes, abbreviations, and dollar signs in little discernible order that may initially serve to confuse more than illuminate, end quote. Dog's breakfast. First of all, yeah, have you we, ever can heard we of talk that? about dog's breakfast? Okay, first. So I never heard of this either. But apparently, it's a British phrase for something that is just a complete mess. It comes oh. from the 1930s, and they think the idea is basically like you're cooking your breakfast, your omelets, or something, you and just it's give it to the dog. Well, it's so bad, it's not fit for human consumption, so you give it to the dog. So a dog's breakfast is a mess. I love it. I have to use it more yeah, often. Yeah, start using that. Anyways, 
But here's the point. Here's an example from the article of, of, of one thing that they found on a company's charge master. So this comes from Centera Hospital in Hampton Roads, Virginia. A $307 charge for something described as, quote, lay, L-A-Y, clos, C-L-O-S, and this all is one word here, HND forward slash FT equals less than 2.5 CM. So what is that? It turns out it's a charge for a small suture in surgery. Wow. <laughs> it's very Wait, you get charged by the suture? Yes. Well see, that's the point too. Everything is charged separately. So you have to look up the cost of any medicine they give you, any blood tests they give you, the cost of staying in the hospital. It's not like here's the cost of giving birth at our hospital. It's all different. Also, what you see listed as the price is what they would charge uninsured people and right. maybe out of network people. Your insurance company has probably, but not always, negotiated a lower cost. Um, and the charge masters are huge, up to 30,000 items. So while it is a little step forward, it's still very confusing. So what's the takeaway here? Well, first of all, some services like rabies shots, immunizations, vaccinations, you actually can get your local at your local health department, so look it up. And chances are it's going to be way cheaper than going to the emergency room for that. Um, also, it is good if you can to try to compare prices. You can try the Charge Master, but there are also more sites that are coming up comparing the costs of procedures in your area, such as healthcarebluebook.com, clearhealthcost.com, and as always, if possible, choose an in service provider. And finally, if you see a stray cat on yeah. the side of the road, just, leave him alone. just put the tuna down, walk away. Otherwise, you could get bit, and feeding that cat could turn your finances into. A dog's breakfast. There we go. And that, Allison, is what's up. <laughs> Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from Hello Monday, a new podcast from LinkedIn editorial team about how to get the most from Monday and your career. Each week, Jesse Hempel sits down with featured guests to investigate the role work plays in our lives, uncovering lessons you can apply to your own career. So, whether you're five hours into your first job or have just 500 left until retirement, you'll be ready to take on Monday and the rest of the work week with the knowledge to make your career work for you. Podcast is hosted by Jesse Hempel. She's written for Wired, Fortune, and Business Week and is now the senior editor-at-large over at LinkedIn, so she knows the right questions to ask for a compelling look at how we work and how we can work better. Find Hello Monday by LinkedIn on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Look for the yellow, I'd say a little yellow icon with a cup of coffee. That's how I tell my podcast oh, apart. Nice. We're the red one. Again, that's Hello Monday, a podcast that'll help you get the most out of your Monday and your career. This is a house that Jack built, y'all. Remember this house. Because you listen to this podcast, you probably know a thing or two about investing. I know I certainly know a thing or two about At least investing. Two things. At least two things. One thing I know absolutely nothing about, though, is real estate investing. But all that changes today because our guest is Thomas Castelli. He's a tax strategist with the Real Estate CPA. Thomas, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you guys for having me today. So, before we get into some of the different ways that people can invest in real estate, mm -hmm. talk about taxes, which everybody loves. I know bro's excited. Bro can't wait to get that part. <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Where are you from? How did you get into this line of work? Absolutely. So, um, I was born and raised on Long Island in New York. Um, currently uh, live in Queens, in Astoria, Queens, right across from Manhattan. Uh, kind of moved out there because I got, got a job in Manhattan before eventually going virtual with the real estate CPA. Uh, the way I kind of got into the real estate space, real estate investing, was uh, when I was in college, I started uh, reading some books, the Rich Dad Poor Dad's books. I'm sure some people are familiar with those. And real estate was a big theme in there. And from there, the rabbit hole just went pretty deep. And I'm like, oh, wow, real estate's what I need to get into. And um, <clears throat> 
So right out of college, I, I went to school for to be an accountant, and I became an auditor. And I kind of looked around. I was like, people 10 years older than me. I'm like, this isn't really what I want to do 10 years from now, 20 years from now. Um, so I started uh, investing in real estate, and uh, that kind of, you know, I started doing deals and stuff like that. And then that culminated in me finding brand, um, finding you know the real estate CPA on LinkedIn and kind of seeing oh wow that was uh, that's kind of a perfect mix of my accounting background and my passion for real estate I get to help real estate investors save money on taxes help them build their wealth so that's kind of how I got involved in the space so why should someone consider investing in real estate it was very compelling to you mm, yes yeah, so I mean I think there's you know there's a bunch of reasons we could discuss three or four of the main ones I think especially for your listeners who may be interested in stocks, is access and control. So, you know, when you're investing, say, in the stock market per se, um, you're investing in a company, you're relying on their management team to really drive the returns for you, and you really don't have that much control over those returns. I mean, you can go to their proxy meeting, but you're not really going to get um, any real influence over that company. You know, when you're investing in real estate, you're going to either be, uh, in many cases, you're doing it directly yourself if you're going to buy your own single family house or your own apartment building, and you're going to have direct control over the entire asset and the way you want to run it. And for some people, um, that's comforting to know that it's the controls in their hands. Um, and in other instances, when you're investing in small partnerships, um, you may not be the managing partner of that entity per se, but you know you might have a relationship or can develop a relationship quite easily where you can have that influence and control over it and that access to the managers and kind of see that. So some people, that's a good reason to do it. Uh, there's a whole entire sect out there that believes that you should control it. Um, so some people like that aspect of it. Another reason, you know, it's it's a proven asset class. Um, you got to look at. Um, the basic core, core core business model of real estate is so you're going to buy a plot of land, you're going to develop it and sell it at a profit, or you're going to hold it and rent it, or you're going to acquire an already existing building and hold it for rent. And you know the fact is, shelter is a basic human need. You know, it's been that way for thousands of years. It's going to continue to be that way, hopefully, for thousands of years. Um, so I don't see that business model going anywhere anytime soon, and neither, neither do a lot of people. And then you got to look at... Um, the supply and demand factor it's built in inherently. You know, uh, in 1990, I think the population was around six billion. Um, now, fast forward 2019, around 30 years, give or take, it's 7.5 billion, over 7.5 billion. So that's 1.5 billion people added in 30 years. But guess how much land was developed in the last 30 years? Uh, basically none, unless you count, you know, dredging of of islands or something. But the reality is um, that land's going to continue to increase in value, especially in those areas that are desirable and people want to live. Uh, so that's that's one reason. Um, and, and another reason is tech isn't going to change it. So you have tech changing all these industries and revolutionizing in- industries in ways that people can't foresee. But at the end of the day, you can't live in the internet. So um, the internet uh, and tech isn't going to replace real estate. It's going to be there. Uh, you know, third reason is multiple profit centers. Um, Real estate has uh, <clears throat> appreciations, the first profit center. You buy it, you hold it, and eventually the price rises, and you're going to have a return on that. There's something called principal paydown because um, most of the time when you buy real estate, you're not buying it in all cash. You're buying it with uh, leverage, you're buying it with debt on it. Um, you're going to, your tenants will end up paying down a part of your principal every month, increasing your equity in the building. Um, so that gives you another form of return. There's, of course, the rental cash flow from it. And then there's the tax benefits, which in and of itself is a profit center. I think we're going to uh, get to that a little later. And just the final reason, some people some people like it because it's a hard asset. You know, you can go and you can touch it. You can feel it, it has intrinsic value. It's not a, a piece of paper that, um, you know, 
I mean, it just it's just physical. Like you could break down the components of a building and sell it. Um, and still, you know, cover some of uh, cover your your cost. So when most people think about investing in real estate, uh, at least here in the D.C. area, for a little little person like me who doesn't have some massive real estate empire or come from a world like that, um, when you think about investing in real estate, you think about investing in um, a house and maybe flipping it, mm-hmm. like a single property, or um, investing in a property and then renting it out. It's, and it is very active, active, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. you have to go and physically either pound nails into the wall yourself and paint the place mm-hmm. or you know um, so let's talk a little bit about act at that that form of real estate investing yeah. because it, it's broken up into mm-hmm. active and passive correct 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 so you know one thing when you're flipping a house it's not really a form of investing necessarily you're actually in the business of you're considered a dealer in most cases so you're actually in the business of buying and selling houses mm. it's really no different than buying and selling cars no different than buying and selling shoes in a shoe store. Um, it just happens to be that uh, the asset's very expensive that you're buying and selling. So, that's more of an active business. It just gets misclassified as as investing by, by real estate investors. Yeah. But, you know, really, the, the active form of investing would be you're building a rental portfolio, buy and hold real estate. And uh, that would mean you're going out and identifying a market that has favorable fundamentals. Uh, so, the population is going to be growing. Uh, job growth is there, diversified economy. Uh, there's other factors maybe that uh, makes that area desirable. And you're going to go and you're going to identify properties. Typically, you know, some people want to, well, most of the time, people want to identify properties that they can get at a discount. Maybe the buyer is distressed uh, and the buyer, you know, has a motivation to sell. Maybe they're getting divorced. Maybe they can't afford it. Maybe they're facing foreclosure. Um, or in other cases, the, the property is has deferred maintenance and needs a lot of work. So you go in and buy it fix it up, raise the value of the property, and then rent it out, um, and then later on sell it down the line. So that's kind of the active side of it, and you're going to be responsible at the end of the day for finding that market, finding that property, uh, putting down the down payment, getting that financing, um, <clears throat> then managing the property after the fact. So are you going to hire a property manager? Or are you going to manage it yourself? All of that comes into play when you're on the active side of the business. And you know, I, I got to say, in the beginning, especially in the beginning when you're just starting out, that's going to be quite um, hefty. It's going to be quite a hefty load for you to, to carry to, to get that to you know your first property or two properties. And then after that, it might be easier for you to scale um, going forward. So that's kind of um, that's kind of the active side for most of you know the individual investors. You'll be buying single family homes, maybe uh, two to four units, maybe smaller apartment buildings. Um, that's the type of thing you'd expect. Now let's talk about passive investing. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going to talk about two different kinds, turnkey and syn- syndicate? Yes, syndication. Okay. All right, syndication. Let's start with turnkey. What is that? Okay, so uh, turnkey investing is when a lot of that work that I just had mentioned is done for you. So, you know, a turnkey company will find uh, a property that has deferred maintenance or uh, from a mot- buy it from a motivated seller. They'll go in and fix that property up and then put a tenant in that property and then sell you that end product. So, you, the investor, you'll buy a property that's already fixed up, already has a tenant in it. And generally, the turnkey company will remain on as uh, the property manager. So it, it becomes, you know, you still own the property, but it becomes very passive for you. And that's why they call it turnkey, because it's almost like you're just buying the property and letting it go. However, you know, when it comes to turnkey, you are still at the end of the day going to be responsible. If a boiler breaks, you're going to be the one paying for it, uh, not the turnkey company. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. But at the same time, you still have that access to control. You still own the property. So you could, um, you know, unless there's some kind of contractual obligation, you can fire the property manager and manage it yourself, hire someone else. So uh, for, ter- for people who are looking to get in on a passive side on a smaller scale, 
uh, and still have that access and control, turnkey is an option there for them. All right. So then the next one we're going to talk about syndicate investing in real estate. If I understand it correctly, this is something that really has taken off recently mm-hmm. because of the Jobs Act. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? So I mean, syndication's been around for a long time. I mean, people were doing syndicates back in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, it's been around, but it's became more popular with crowdfunding. And then, you know, with the the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, with the uh, introduction of opportunity funds, we're definitely going to see a rise in that type of business model on the syndication side. And so, I I know a bit about the Jobs Act and how it has opened up um, investing like this for people, for more people, like because of uh, the Motley Fool Ventures Fund. Mm-hmm. Like before the Jobs Act, it probably would not have been possible for us to for the Motley Fool to open up a venture fund and have eight hundred limited partners. And so, in a similar way. The Jobs Act opened it up so that accredited investors have more opportunity to invest in commercial real estate. Um, the Jobs Act definitely opened it up to more people and allowing more people to invest. And you don't always necessarily have to be an accredited investor. To be an accredited investor, you have to. Yeah. So to be a accredited investor, you have to, as a single individual, you have to make two hundred thousand dollars or more for the last two years, with the anticipation of making that same amount or more in the third year. Uh, if you're married. That's going to be three hundred thousand um, dollars, or you have to have a net worth of one million dollars or more, excluding the value of your primary residence, and that's whether you're married or single. So those are the two different ways you can qualify as an accredited investor. Um, there's certain offerings that are made uh, to what's called sophisticated investors. A sophisticated <laughs> investor. <laughs> I love that. Everyone thinks they're a good driver, have a great sense of humor, they're and are a sophisticated investor. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, there's definitely different levels of sophistication, but basically, there's something called a 506B rule. It's a regulation under Regulation D that allows uh, sponsors or people who are going to raise the money for a deal to allow up to 35 non-accredited investors into the deal, um, as long as they're "Quote unquote sophisticated," and that's really going to be determined um, by the sponsor themselves and how much risk they're willing to really take on by bringing someone who, um, you know, they have to understand this person is sophisticated, so they have to measure that in some way. Maybe this person works in real estate. Maybe they have a finance or accounting background or business background, and you know, they might not be accredited, but they're still sophisticated enough to understand what they're investing in. Got it. All right, so let's get into it. How does it work? All right. So for syndication, uh, syndication is basically when multiple people pool their money together to buy an asset that uh, they wouldn't maybe be able to buy individually. Uh, so there's two parts of a syndicate. There's going to be the general partnership side, um, also called the sponsors, and there's going to be the limited partners or the passive investors. And uh, the sponsors are responsible for everything in the deal, making sure that it happens, making sure that they're identifying the market, identifying the property, identifying the business plan. Usually, um, there's something called a value-add uh, strategy, where they go into a property that has that deferred maintenance and, or, has, you know, or is otherwise undervalued. They're going to renovate that property over a few years and raise that property's value and then later on sell it. So they're going to be responsible for, again, just uh, identifying the asset, making sure it's going to market, coming up with a business plan to renovate that property. Uh, they're going to be responsible for raising the, finan- raising the financing, both from uh, the debt side, whether that be from a bank or another institutional lender, or from, and then the equity side was going to be usually from passive investors to be used for the down payment and renovation budget of the property. And then they're going to uh, usually use third-party property management um, to manage the property and make sure that renovation goes as planned and ultimately uh, selling the property. And you know these things usually happen anywhere from three to seven years is the traditional time frame of a syndication from purchase to end. Uh, it just depends on a number of factors from you know market conditions, how long it takes to get the renovation done. Um, so that's kind of how that works. 
And does it end when they determine they're going to sell the property to someone else? Or when does it, what determines the end? Yes. Because so, it seems like your money, I assume your money's locked up there. Yes. Yeah, or so, how, how do you get, how do you get paid? Yeah. So, um, so it, it depends on the structure of the deal. Um, there's all different types of structures and how it could be done. But sometimes there's cash flow um, that comes out uh, during, uh, during the ownership of the property. You get distributions. And then there is also the, the capital gain at the end of the sale. So when the property is sold, usually when the syndication will end. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that, that's the two profit models. Now, um, two different ways to kind of make money on the syndication. Now, uh, depending on who you're investing with and how they structure it, usually you'll see anywhere from a 6 to 10% pref with eight kind of preferred return, um, which means that uh, the investors will get paid out anywhere from that six to ten percent annually before the sponsors get to touch any of the money, right? Um, before they get any profits, and then um, usually there's a target of uh, fifteen to twenty percent or more internal rate of return. So this is the kind of uh, returns you kind of expect on these deals. Um, now. Depending on what type of asset class you're investing in, uh, they can it, can it can vary. And these days, uh, a lot of people investing in multifamily are starting to see those kind of rates decrease slightly because the people there's a lot of money chasing a little bit amount of assets. You know, supply and demand is going to push the price of those assets up. Um, and when you have to purchase that asset for a higher price, the the return the yield is going to be, of course, lower. So um, returns vary. Um, and I'd have to say that if you're going to be investing in one of these things, the biggest Part as a passive investor to look at is the sponsor themselves. You know, what track record do they have? Uh, do they have a track record of success in that asset class? For instance, multifamily or self storage. Um, you know, what do other investors say about them? Uh, who are their partners? You know, uh, who are they using as their 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 lender, their attorney, their accountants? You know, all of this comes into play. Um, when you're determining whether or not you want to put your money with it, and it really comes down to, you know, like Warren Buffett always says, the management team. You know, you invest in a company with good management. It's no different here. All right, I'm going to lean back now while we talk, <laughs> while we shift to talk about taxes. Um, I always struggle when we talk about taxes because I want to know why the tax code is the way it is, and I I need to remind myself that taxes are just this bear of a thing that have, a monster, yeah. like a Frankenstein monster that's been created <laughs> and influenced by tons of different people and interests. Mm-hmm. And um, you love talking about taxes. I would uh, say I love no, you talking love about it. taxes. You love talking about taxes. So I am going to lean back a little bit and let bro lean in a bit more <laughs> to talk about, all right, what are some of the tax benefits of investing in real estate? Because some of them just make my, my head spin. I'm like, really? Really? The, what? Yeah. Well, so uh, it is different than, yeah. than if you go out and buy shares of Amazon. And yeah, let's just absolutely. start with depreciation, first of all. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so a lot of people consider real estate and what they call is tax advantaged income, and that really comes from depreciation. So, you know, when you buy a buy a piece of land, when you buy a property, right? You buy a building and you rent it out to someone. You have cash flow. It's going to be considered rental income, and then you're going to have your operating expenses, things like advertising, mortgage payments, um, property management fees, anything like that. And then there's one of those expenses, one of those operating expenses called depreciation, which is not a cash expense. So there's no cash that actually goes out of your pocket when you take depreciation, but it can be usually increased through various strategies um, so that you actually show a loss for tax purposes, despite actually generating positive cash flow. So you you might have, just say, for example, you have $10,000 of rental income, $4,000 of real actual cash operating expenses that left your pocket, 
and then you have um, you know, say you have a seven thousand dollar depreciation expense. Now you have a net loss of one thousand dollars. So you're paying nothing on that income, but you really pulled in six grand and you put into your pocket. Um, so that's that's kind of what the power of depreciation is, and you can use cost irrigation studies uh, to increase. Uh, your depreciation and with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, they actually came out with something called a hundred percent bonus depreciation that allows you to depreciate property with a class life of less than twenty years. And generally on real estate, anywhere from twenty to thirty percent of a property can be classified as five, seven, and fifteen year property. So you can depreciate f- you know uh, twenty to thirty percent of that property and take that expenses depreciation in the first year you buy it, um, which you know has a major impact on the amount of money and tax you're going to pay over over the time you own the property. Right. Basically, you're allowed to... It's kind of <clears throat> funny, because you're basically saying, I own this asset that mm-hmm. I want to increase in value, but I get to take this charge yeah. that assumes that it's actually depreciating in value, but it's usually yeah. not, really. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it, it's usually not. For the most part, real estate tends to increase in value. And, you know, there is a dark side to depreciation. It's not all um, love. You know, there's uh, something called depreciation recapture, which when you sell the property, you have to, to recapture the amount of depreciation you took, um, <clears throat> assuming you have a gain, of course, up to 25%. Um, it's a tax of tw- up to 25%. Um, but generally, the thought process behind that is is the time value of money. Right. You'd rather take the depreciation today, uh, have the tax-free cash flow so you could you know reinvest it, put it back into your business, um, and then pay the taxes later on. Then to worry about you know oh if I if I have, oh, and by the way you can't not take depreciation and avoid that. Some people say well what if I just don't take depreciation do I have to pay that tax? The IRS will assume um, that you did take the depreci- depreciation and charge you that tax anyway. So you're better off taking it. There's no way to avoid it. And you know there are ways to to avoid that depreciation recapture tax, and I think we'll we'll talk about that in a little bit as well. Right. So that's that's basically getting a tax break along the way. But then there's the tax break you can get when you sell the property, otherwise known as 1031 exchanges. <clears throat> Why don't you yeah. talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So when you sell a property, you're going to have a capital gain, um, and part of that capital hopefully gain, hopefully, hopefully you'll have a capital gain. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean uh, assuming assuming you're investing the right way, you're going to have a capital gain, right? And you're going to have part of that capital gain is going to be depreciation recapture. Now, what a 1031 exchange allows you to do is defer that capital gain and the depreciation recapture by purchasing another property. So what you what you have is you have 180 days from the day you sell your original property to roll over the entire sales proceeds, so both the capital gain and your original principal, into another deal. This is normally called trading up. So let's just say you have a property that you bought for $100,000, uh, 10 years passes, and now it's worth uh, $150,000. And you have a $50,000 capital gain Break it up in between capital gain and depreciation and recapture. However, you want, you're still gonna have to pay tax on that 50 grand. So when you pay tax on that 50 grand of capital gains, you're gonna have less money you can reinvest. So what a 1031 allows you to do is invest that entire amount. So you're not paying the taxes today, and you could purchase a larger property. And um, you could continually purchase larger and larger properties, uh, and continue to use the 1031 exchange pretty much forever. And if you really wanted to, and this is it's just gotta be honest, it's easier said than done. You can eventually leave the property to your heirs, and they'll receive that property at the fair market value on the date of your death, eliminating all of this capital gains and depreciation recapture that you should have paid during your lifetime. So, you know, in theory, you can just keep purchasing larger and larger properties, making more and more cash flow, 
um, but never actually paying any taxes on that property. <laughs> so crazy right. to me. Yeah, it's, it just, crazy. it's just crazy to me. It's like it, this is one of the reminders of like how it's easier <clears throat> to get richer when you're already rich. <laughs> like, <laughs> if you're already wealthy, then there's all these ways for you to just easily make more. Well, you know, I have to say something on on that, too. So, you know, these days, I, I feel like, you know, the internet, Google, uh, podcasts like this, um, there's a lot of ways to access information. And as long as you're willing to put in the work and, you know, do the research and, and kind of pull things together, you know, I always like, my, my motto is going to be figure it out, right? If you're, as long as you're willing to figure it out, you're going to you're going to be able to put a lot of things together and you can use these same strategies that, you know, the quote unquote rich are using. There's no one stopping you from using it. It's just in the past, there wasn't as much access to this information. Oh, sure. You'd have to like join yeah. the country club. Like yeah. you'd have to be on the links to learn about <laughs> real estate deals. Yeah. You know, you have to be, you'd have to be paying attorneys and, and tax accountants a, a ton of money to figure this stuff out. But today, you know, it's, it's all there. Yeah. It's all there for you. Yeah. Now, you mentioned uh, opportunity funds. Yeah. So, this is a very new thing. I'm not going to even try to describe it. I'm going to leave yeah. it to you because it okay. is so new. But it is another way to defer and maybe even eliminate some of your capital gains. And you, yeah. it doesn't even have to start with real estate. It could be you want to sell some shares of your Amazon. You have a capital gain. Mm -hmm. Here's a way to at least defer some of that. Yes. So, can you define for us what an opportunity fund is? Absolutely. So, um, so before we talk about an opportunity fund, you have to understand what an opportunity zone is. So, an opportunity zone. There's 87,000 opportunity zones across the United States, and they are low-income communities that were designated by the state governors as opportunity zones, and then approved by Treasury. Um, an opportunity fund is the vehicle, the investment vehicle that you can invest in an opportunity zone. And for investing in these opportunity zones, through this opportunity fund, you have these tax incentives. The way the opportunity funds work is you can defer the tax, the capital gains tax on any capital asset. Um, that's you know, usually stocks, bonds, mutual funds, um, <clears throat> real estate, things like that. If you're not sure, you could always ask your CPA and they can let you know. But um, basically, what you can do is you can roll it into an opportunity fund within 180 days of sale, very similar to a 1031 exchange there. But uh, the difference there is you only have to roll over the capital gain. So you know you don't you could take the principal back that you invested, put it in your pocket, do whatever you want with it, um, and then. If you hold that capital gain in the fund for five years, you're going to receive a 10% stepped-up basis in that gain. So let's just say you have $100,000 capital gain, and in five years you receive the 10% step-up, you're only going to pay tax on $90,000 of that capital gain. If you hold it for another two years, um, for a total of seven years, you're going to only pay, you're going to, it's going to step up another 5% for a total of 15%, and you'll only pay tax on 85000 of that gain. Um, now, if you hold that investment in the fund for 10 years, your investment in the actual fund itself will be tax-exempt. So let's just say that $100,000 you put into the fund, um, 10 years from now, it's now worth $150,000. That $50,000 capital gain is completely exempt from tax. Um, now, this is a longer-term play. Um, you have to keep your money in there for at least five five years to see any benefit of it. I think there's over seven trillion dollars or something, some crazy number of appreciated gains in the United States. Um, so all of those appreciated gains are te technically eligible for opportunity funds. And I think the background behind this is they want to take those the, those appreciated assets and move them into low income communities that need renovation and 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 raise the status of those communities and opportunity zones opportunity funds are the way to do that. So this isn't a situation like necessarily like 
a mutual fund. Like you don't go to Fidelity and say, I want your version of the opportunity fund, right? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think you're going to see, you know, because of the, the, the requirements to have an opportunity fund, you have to either substantially improve these assets, which means doubling the property's basis. Essentially, it's it's the building's basis, but just think about it, I guess, for, for this purpose, as the purchase price, you have to add as much as the purchase price, basically, in in um, in capital improvements. So, it's substantial, or you have to develop the property from the ground up. So, for individuals, and then you have to hold it for 10 years, right? So, for individuals, this, this might be a hurdle, but you're, I think you're going to see more institutional-level people doing it. You're going to see more of the crowdfunding sites doing it. Will someone like a Fidelity do it? I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't think so. I think you're more or less going to see. I mean, I think Golden, Goldman Sachs announced something, um, but you're going to see more of uh, more of the professional side probably on crowdfunding. All right, we have covered a lot here. So for our listeners who want to learn more, you've got a couple options. They can go to your website, realestatecpa.com. What are they going to get from that website? So on, on our website, you'll find a blog, a blog with a ton of accounting and tax tips related to real estate. Um, we also have a podcast um, where we bring on. Uh, successful real estate investors, and they describe, you know, kind of their journey and how they got to where they are, or a specific strategy they use. And then we also discuss how they handle their accounting and taxes and what tax strategies they use. So that's a great resource. A lot of people love that. Um, on there, you also find videos. We're starting to put out accounting and tax tip videos, um, kind of bite-sized clips for you to learn stuff. Um, we also have information on. We also have pretty much information on our services and stuff on there, but really uh, the education portion is probably what you'd want to check out. Kind of familiar yourself with, uh, familiarize yourself more with uh, the tax benefits of real estate specifically. Cool. Great. And also for our listeners, if this interview has you interested in learning more about real estate investing, guess what? The Motley Fool is also launching its first service to help people invest in real estate. It's called Mogul, and it will recommend investments in REITs, equities, and commercially crowdfunded deals as well as provide a range of tools, calculators, researched, and curated tax advice to help you enhance your returns. So, if you want to learn more about what The Motley Fool is doing in real estate, you can go to fool.com slash mogul. That's fool.com slash M-O-G-U-L. All right. You up for sticking around? Yeah. And and seeing how much you know about Giga Mansions? Giga Mansions. (laughs) All right. Let's do it. First, we had mansions, then we had mega mansions and McMansions. Now we have Giga Mansions. Yes, it's a growing trend of massive houses, usually built in the LA area. Uh, on spec, they are massive, expensive, and outrageously ostentatious. So let's see if you two can answer some trivia around some of the most expensive pieces of real estate, residential real estate on the market. All right. All right, the first one is The One. That's right, the name of the house is called The One. And by which I mean a $500 million spec giga mansion built by ex movie producer turned developer Niall Niami. I don't know if I'm sure. The one will be America's largest house on the market at 100,000 square feet. Oh boy. Uh, it'll have it'll be the most expensive private residence when it comes to the market. It will, bo- it, which it hasn't come to the market yet. It was supposed to go on the market by now, but it hasn't. It boasts four swimming pools, a nightclub, a room where the walls and ceiling are filled with jellyfish. Wow. It will have a thirty-car gallery because at this price, you don't call it a garage. <laughs> of the twenty bedrooms, how many are in a separate building just for your staff? <laughs> The staff quarters? Yes. How many buildings? There are 20 bedrooms total. 20 bedrooms. How many are just for your staff? I don't know, Matt. I want to say 10. 
I'll go seven. I'll go lower. You nailed it. Oh, seven. That's how many I have from my staff. So here's here's a quote from uh, the developer Niall Niami. It was in the New York Times. Let's say you're a super wealthy single dude who just sold your company. You've just moved to L.A. and you don't know anybody, so you hire someone to fill your house with partiers. You want everyone to know who you are, but you don't want to talk to anybody, so you go sit in your VIP room. <laughs> this is like the most expensive house for the loneliest man in the world. All right, let's move on and talk about the house called Billionaire. It's 38,000 square feet. It was, it was America's most expensive house on the market when it was listed for $250 million in 2017. The property is in the exclusive Los Angeles suburb of Bel Air. It has 12 bedrooms, 21 bathrooms, three kitchens, a 40-seat James Bond-themed cinema, six bars, two fully stocked champagne cellars, and the helicopter from what 1980s television series? Rick knows this. Um, you can't wait to say I'm going to say the A-team. That yeah. is a good guess. Uh, I, I've got to be honest. I don't know any <laughs> 80s shows or which ones were in the 80s, unfortunately. Rick? Magnum? Nope. Airwolf. Do what? you remember the TV show Airwolf? No. So, <laughs> the helicopter from the TV show Airwolf. There are some of our listeners that are screaming at us right now for not for you guys for not knowing Airwolf. Um so, yes, it's part of the deal. It sits on the roof, and it just sits there on the helipad because it's not operable. Um, <laughs> the house also comes with a fleet of luxury cars worth $30 million, including a one-of-a-kind Pagani Huara, a Rolls-Royce, and a Bugatti. Wow. Hey, let's stay in this house a little longer because this mm. house is pretty fun. You also get a game room with a custom-made glass foosball table, a four-lane bowling alley, and a wall of candy valued at how much? Oh. How much is the wall of candy appraised for? <laughs> I, for? My first question is, do they change the candy, or has this candy been there for a while? I'm just going to throw a number out there, $239,000. Okay, I'll go again, I'll go lower, Two thirty-seven. <laughs> it's very close, you guys, $200,000. Wow, wow it good basically job. Looks, totally going off of you. No, great. <laughs> it looks like the bulk section of your grocery store, just full of candy all the way to the ceiling. Ugh. <clears throat> Again, let's stay at the billionaire house. It was initially listed for $250 million in 2017, and it hasn't sold yet. It was recently relisted in January at what price? So originally, $250 in 2017. What are they trying to sell it for now? I'm going to say 70 and I'm only saying that because I know they just, I think they just relisted Michael Jackson's home at a 70% discount. So. I'm gonna go upwards. Um, I'm gonna go with something ridiculous. Uh, Nine hundred fifty thousand. Nine hundred fifty million dollars. <laughs> now they they had to go down. They okay. dropped a hundred million. It is now on the market for hundred and fifty million. What a steal! I know. I All know. that Isn't candy. That All right, now we're going to the mountain. Uh, so. L.A. recently had its first $1 billion residential listing last year. It's named The Mountain. You'll get 157 acres of panoramic views and the ultimate privacy on the highest peak in Beverly Hills. The only thing it doesn't have is... Windows. I don't know. Guest house. The A-team. A house at all? Any house. It's just a lot. <laughs> what? Yeah. It's a gorgeous, massive lot. A billion-dollar lot. <clears throat> a billion-dollar lot. Wow. Yeah. yeah. All right, now we're going to go to the manor. The largest home in L.A. was actually built in 1988 by the TV show producer Aaron Spelling and his wife Candy. The 56,000 56, square foot, 14 bedroom, 27 bath home 
Originally, it was built for $12 million. They sold it all in a cash deal for $85 million in 2011 to the 23-year-old daughter of someone wealthy. Don't worry about it. So she renovated much of the house since it had some very quirky spaces, including a flower-cutting room, a humidity-controlled silver storage room, a barbershop, and three rooms for doing what common birthday and Christmas activity? Opening presents. Wrapping presents. Ah, wrapping presents. That's right. Three rooms in this house are dedicated to gift wrapping. Wow. I got to go there for Christmas. Yeah. So she listed the the woman who bought the house, um, listed it in 2016 with an asking price of $200 million, later relisted it at $175 million. And then I don't know what happened. I don't know where it ended up. Hmm. All right. I, I would hope that somebody who lives in that house gives a lot of gifts. Yes. Yeah. I think that's the right. message. Like, here. Generous person. All right. Now we're going to go to the OG Giga Mansion. We some say the recent trend in Giga Mansions is reminiscent of the Gilded Age, when wealthy new money Americans built amazing houses to emulate and impress old money Europeans. While all of these fancy new Giga houses are big, they pale in comparison to the original Giga Mansion built in the late 19th century by George Washington Vanderbilt II. The second. That comes in at hundred over 178,000 square feet, located in Asheville, North Carolina. What's the house called? I know that one. Do you know that? No. Biltmore. The Biltmore. It's beautiful. That's Ash- right. Asheville itself is beautiful, but while you're there, definitely it take It took it over six years to complete, 1,000 workers. It has 250 rooms. And while the Biltmore doesn't have a jellyfish room, it did have underwater lights in its indoor swimming pool at a time when most homes still lit by candles and oil. And I was going to say they paid people to hold the candles. Right, right. So there you go. Wow. You guys have a lot to learn about Giga Mansions. We yeah. do. It's not, not up to par here. <laughs> it's all right. We'll get well, there. We'll get there one day. That's not why we brought you on here anyway. So Just keep trading up. That's yeah. right. Right, yeah. right, right. <laughs> That'll be the, the last big 1031 exchange. Change right, right there, baby. Thomas, thank you so much for joining <laughs> us on the show today. Again, his uh, website to visit is therealestatecpa.com. Thank you guys for having me on. All right. Well, that's the show. My voice held out barely. <laughs> Ooh, okay. The show is edited rapidly by Rick Engdahl. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Stay foolish, everybody.